People have been asking me lately if I'm sick. Um, the answer is no. I'm allergic to my dog, so I've been sick for like four months. And uh, so uh, I discovered this recently. By the way, my name's Eric. It's great to see you. Um, I'm allergic to our new puppy. Her name is Daisy. I also love her very dearly. And so does everybody else in our family. They've made it clear that, the, that I will go before the dog goes if there's... <laughs> If somebody has to go. So a uh, combination of prayers, petitions, humidifiers, Zyrtec, and Flonase is getting me through the day. And so if my voice sounds weird or weirdly deep, that's what's going on. Let's open the Bible. Okay. Uh, Luke chapter 6. Do you need a Bible? Thanks, Lisa. Lisa's going to hand you a Bible. Maybe somebody else. We open up the scriptures here at River West Church because we believe God has spoken And he is still speaking. And so it's a great privilege to open up the word together tonight to Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. I'll read. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowds sought to touch him, for power came out from him, and he healed them all. This is God's holy word. You know, when I, when I get assigned a text of, of, of scripture to preach, I get really excited. It's like there's a list and it's, it's like a calendar of who's preaching when and what texts of scriptures we're, we're preaching. And so occasionally I'll look at the list and see, oh, in a few weeks, there's my name and there's this passage. And, and there's always this rush of excitement to read the passage and to open it up and to see what God's doing and to share in it with you. And admittedly, I read this passage a couple weeks back and I was like, okay. I mean, it sounds, maybe you feel the same way. It, it sounds... Um, it sounds a bit informational, doesn't it? Like it, it sounds like this just this transitional passage from something really awesome that we saw last week where we learned about Jesus, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man. And, and, and I'll give you a preview of where we're heading, which is um, Luke's version of what's called the Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the longest and greatest um, sermon of Jesus that he ever preached. And right in the middle, we have this passage. And it's different than what we've been reading so far, isn't it? There's, there aren't really any um, personal interactions going on. Um, it talks about healings, but it's not connected to someone's story. Um, we don't see the overt drama between Jesus and the religious leaders. We just simply have this passage laid out in front of us. And, and I'm curious, and you probably are as well, to, to why like, why is, this, why is this little passage here? What is going on? 
Is it, is it an important link between what we just learned about and what we're going to learn about? That's certainly true. But I think actually this passage in and of itself is deeply important in our understanding of not just what Jesus was doing, but who we are. And the truth is this, this passage is here because Jesus is forming a new community. You can write that down. That would be the headline of this sermon is Jesus is forming a new community. Now, Jesus, so far through Luke, it's, it's, um, we, we might tend to think of him as a, as a loner. Uh, we might tend to think of him as the kind of guy who's just doing his own thing, blazing his own trail. I mean, the earliest stories of him after infancy, he ditches his parents and stays in Jerusalem to learn at the synagogue. And then we're reintroduced to him in chapter three. He shows up for his baptism. And then after that, he heads out into the wilderness alone. And then he comes back to the synagogue and he opens up um, the book of Isaiah in the synagogue and says, hey, all this is about me. And then he's healing and, and he's teaching and he's interacting with individuals. And, and it's, it sort of seems like Jesus is this lone prophet, sage, traveling through the countryside. But here in our passage tonight, we get insight into the mission of Jesus. He is forming a community. He's building a community. I'll even go as far to say tonight that Jesus is organizing his community. And that's what's happening. That's, that's why this passage is here. We're supposed to see and to know that Jesus is building a community. But tonight, I want us to look at who is in this community. Who's actually there? And there's three groups of people it's important for us, I think, to look at each one of them, and, and they are this. They're, this community that is being formed consists of leaders, followers, and seekers. I mean, just look at this passage with me. In verse 12, we see this is what happens. Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. We're told that all night he's up there on the mountain in prayer to God. In fact, if we put verse 12 back on the screen, that phrase in prayer to God is actually in the prayer of God, which means that it's not so much that Jesus was up on the mountain to talk to God, but Jesus goes up on the mountain to listen to God. Jesus is up on the mountain because something, he needs to hear and discover something from his heavenly father. Now, if you follow Jesus, through the, through the gospel accounts, if you've read any of the gospel accounts, you'll notice that it is, it is very common for Jesus to pray. But there are these monumental moments, these momentous moments in his life and ministry where the scriptures make extra emphasis that Jesus goes away to pray because something huge is about to happen. And that is happening right now in our text and sometimes when, this is, when something big is going to happen, in particular, Jesus goes up on the mountain and he spends the entire night in prayer listening to God. If you're looking for a spiritual principle from this passage for tonight, here's one for you. If you have something momentous about to happen in your life, you should pray. And you might even want to pray all night because that'll work. God will speak to you. 
but this, this huge moment that Jesus is, is experiencing, that he is, is praying into, is a moment where he is seeking to discover from God who will be the leaders of this community that he's forming. There's a special group of, of leaders, and our passage calls them apostles. So I want to talk about leaders tonight. I want to talk a little bit in this passage about who Jesus has called in a unique way to be the leaders. And truly at the core of every community is leaders. Nations rise and fall related to how leaders do and who the leaders are. And Jesus is choosing leaders amongst all of his disciples. We'll spend a little bit more time on the word disciple in a few moments. But amongst all of his followers, Jesus is is choosing leaders to form the nucleus of his new community. And the name that is given to them is the Twelve. Or here we see a more specific name that we want to talk about, and that word is apostle. And the word apostle simply means one who was sent, a messenger. So this word apostle can have a very general meaning. It could mean any person who was sent by another on a mission, And in a few places in the New Testament, it simply means that. But in our passage, it becomes clear that these apostles are being set apart. These leaders are being set apart in a unique way for a unique task. And so as we continue to read about them in Luke and also in the book of Acts, which was also written by Luke, we see that these men were chosen by Jesus, the Lord, for a critical, and I'll argue, unrepeatable mission in the history of the church. So we're going to look at these, these, these 12 men who, who will do extraordinary things, but it's worth mentioning that they are not chosen for their resume. They're not chosen based on their experience. They haven't earned this job. They haven't applied for this job. Jesus chooses them because God reveals them to him. And so I want to put that list up for us of, of these apostles. And we're, we're going to talk briefly about them. It starts in, in verse 14. Can we put verse 14 up there? There we go. You've heard of him, maybe the first one, Simon, who was named Peter. Simon was impulsive. He had a bit of a temper, an authority problem, if you will. And he's definitely, of all these apostles, he's the one that is the most famous. We know the most about him. But then we have someone, I think on the next, on the next screen in, in verse 15, can we shoot to that, is James, the son of Alphaeus. We literally know nothing about James, the son of Alphaeus. He's mentioned here and then basically nowhere else in the New Testament. And church history tells us pretty much nothing about him. In our list, we also have James and John. These were referred to as the sons of thunder who at various points in the Gospels, it's revealed that their motives are pretty mixed that they're, they're looking for prestige and power and authority. And then there is perhaps the most unlikely pair of all. We see in this list, we've got Matthew, who many believe was a tax collector and many believe actually was Levi of a passage a few weeks ago that we talked about. We have Matthew, the tax collector, sometimes called Levi, and then Simon, the zealot. This is not a good combo if you're trying to put a team together. 
This would be, so I was reading this, somebody said this would be almost like picking like a Navy SEAL and an Al-Qaeda leader and putting them together and saying, go change the world together. I mean, you can imagine, I'm serious, you can imagine they would have differing opinions on what that might actually mean. But uh, a tax collector, as we saw a, a couple weeks ago, is, is a person who had, had betrayed Israel. This was, a, this was a traitor. This is someone who was deeply despised in the community of Israel. And then we have Simon, who's referred to as a zealot, which at least means that he was a religious radical, but oftentimes that word zealot would refer to someone who was um, radical in a military way. So we've got people trying to overthrow Rome, and we've got people who are working with Rome, and God says, hey, these guys are on your team, which strategically is, is, is baffling, I think we'd admit. But this is who Jesus is putting together as his leaders. And what it tells us, it tells us something significant, that this group of, of people that were put together were not put together because of their gifting. The focus is on their calling. The focus is not on, on the awesome things that they could do, but it was actually on the amazing things that Jesus could do in and through them. This is a project. These guys are not ready, but Jesus it says, I can work with them. So that's our list. That's our crew. It's a bit of a motley crew. It is not the A-team. It is not, insert comic book reference here. I don't know. This is, this is not, you know, the, um, this is not the type of team that you'd put together to go change the world. But this is the team that God put together. And I love that. Um, they, have a, they have a particular thing that they're called to do as apostles. And remember, that word means messengers. And so, plain and simple, the New Testament tells us that their role, these 12, was to live with and to follow Jesus, to preserve his teachings, to witness his death, his resurrection, and his ascension, and to tell the whole world about what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And so they would preach the gospel and do miraculous things in the name of Jesus as a continuation of his ministry. That is what an apostle, not just in this story here, but throughout the New Testament actually is. And their testimony, their leadership would be the foundation of the church. And Jesus is the cornerstone of that. You might be wondering why there's 12 of them. Did anybody wonder that? The numbers in, in the scriptures are incredibly important. The number 12 is significant um, in a few ways, but What's happening here is the 12 that Jesus picks is a picture of God's people, Israel. Now, Israel was ordered under 12 tribes um, that would reflect the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name in the Old Testament was changed to Israel. And they represented the tribes of Israel. This is how the, tri uh, the people of Israel were ordered. This is how they were understood to be a people. It was 12 tribes. And so what Jesus is doing here was when he steps onto the scene and he forms and organizes his community, the first thing he is saying is that he is saying, Israel, you're mine. He's, he's laying claim to God's people as their Messiah and as their king. And even further than that, what he's doing is he is telling them, I think in a really explicit way, that their leadership has failed. 
Now, when you read the gospel accounts, Jesus is, is so often um, coming, butting up heads with the religious leaders of the day. And what he's doing is he's telling them that they've failed in their mission. He's telling them that they have, have failed in the sense that they've heaped rules on people that were actually keeping them from experiencing God's presence, that the, the Pharisees had ostracized the poor and the needy, and Jesus is coming down from the mountain here to say, I'll take it from here, me and these 12 guys, who's, who have, other than their calling from Jesus, have no business in being there. Jesus says, these 12. And, the, and when you heard the list, you probably noticed that there's, there's a person in the list who forfeits the role. Did you see that at the end of the list? Judas is scary. If you, if you, if you read through the, the, the gospel accounts, you know that, that Judas becomes a traitor and forfeits his role as an apostle, and then it comes down to 11. Now, if you read in the book of Acts, one of the first things that happens after Jesus ascends to heaven is that Peter goes, hey, actually, we've just got 11 of us now. It needs to be 12. That's an important number, and it's important for what God is doing right now. And so they gather together, and they pray and feel led to call in and bring in another apostle so that it's at 12 again. And these 12 form the nucleus of the New Testament church in Jerusalem. These 12 are part of, of revealing that God's plan to Israel is still going forward. And, but you might be thinking, maybe you're not thinking this, but you might be thinking, aren't there other disciples? You might be thinking of a particularly famous one that we often preach from here at River West Church. Do you know who I'm talking about? Paul. Are there 13? Well, here's the deal. Paul is, is a persecutor of the first century church. He is very anti-Jesus. And if you know his story, Jesus um, reveals himself to Paul, the risen Jesus reveals himself to Paul in a very significant, impactful way and says, basically, I know that you are on the other team, but I've actually transferred you to my team. And in fact, you're going to be one of the captains of my team and you're going to take my message, the gospel, to the Gentiles. And so that we have Paul as the apostle. And throughout the New Testament, you'll read about this word apostle. And these are the men that God has chosen to lead the church. So when you read the New Testament, what you're doing is you're reading the apostolic witness and testimony of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, every New Testament book is connected to an apostle. Here's what I mean by that. When you read the New Testament, if you read um, the gospel of Mark, what we know is that John Mark was, was deeply connected to Peter. And so when you're reading the gospel of Mark, what you're, what you're seeing is all, a lot of these stories that involve Peter. And, and Peter is the apostle who's speaking into John, John Mark, the gospel writer, and giving him this insight of what the gospel actually is and what Jesus has done. If you, if you were to read on through the New Testament, you'll see that Peter wrote his own letters to the church. Peter becomes a writer 
of the New Testament scriptures. The Gospel of John was written by the Apostle John, who finds his way into our list as well, and wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also Revelation. Paul, who we just talked about, who became an apostle, wrote a high percentage of the New Testament as well. And it's these men that God sovereignly chose to bring together as the nucleus of the first century church to witness the resurrection of Jesus. And they're described as ones who are called to guard the deposit, to guard the gospel that had been revealed in Jesus Christ. And so they have a unique and specific role, the 12. And we're introduced to them here as a key as key members of this new community that Jesus has formed but they're not always called apostles they're also often called disciples and that's a word that that we throw around sometimes in in church but it's a word that that we would do well to discover what it would meant in the century now, in, in the first century, the, the word disciple was a word that was primarily used to describe in the Gospels the community of people that God, that Jesus is forming. So we know Jesus to be the Son of God, the Messiah. We believe that he is the King. We believe that he rose from the grave. We, as, as his church, we believe that these things are true about him. But as Jesus traveled throughout the Gospels, very few people knew these things about him. And even when Jesus would, would begin to speak about who he actually was, very few people seemed to actually get it. Most of the time when people are talking to Jesus, speaking to him, they refer to him as teacher. Or even this word that we don't always use, but it's a word that is called rabbi. And a disciple was a word that was used to describe someone who was a student of a particular teacher or rabbi. But this is more than, it's more than just a student. It's more than just like being a disciple of someone means more than you just read a couple of their books. And so when we hear the word student, we shouldn't think of our college professor who we had for a semester for like three hours once a week. It's much, much deeper than that. To be a disciple to someone meant that you followed them. And I literally mean followed them. You were attached to them. So don't think college prof, think like deadheads. Anybody? None of you, I'm, look, I'm looking for people over the age of 50. I see you, John, I see you. Okay. Anyways, um, people who have ordered their entire lives around something or someone that they're following. And this is the term that's used to describe Jesus and the way he relates to his followers. A Jewish disciple would pay close attention to every single thing the teacher would say to them, particularly in regard to the Torah or the law, really the heart of the Old Testament scriptures. These would be the things that the rabbis were teaching them. And a Jewish disciple would be paying attention to that. Someone once said in rabbinic school, the primary task of the disciple or a student or a learner or apprentice, the primary task of of the disciple would be to learn the Torah. But for Jesus' disciples, the primary task was to learn him. The primary task of Jesus' disciples was to follow and to learn to become like him. And Jesus was comfortable with this 
kind of relationship. In fact, in, later on in, in Luke chapter 6 and verse 40, Jesus himself will say this. We'll put this on the screen. Do we have this, Luke? Yes, 640. It says, this is Jesus. He says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. So think about that statement for a second. What an amazing statement. Jesus is building a community of disciples, of men and women who will follow him, who will learn from him, who will embody his ways to such a degree that they actually become like him. And this includes the leaders. There's only a few apostles in this community that Jesus is forming, but everyone is a disciple. You don't graduate from being a disciple. Does that make sense? You're not like, oh, I'm kind of done with that now that, I'm, now that I'm here. This was a lifelong identity, and they understood it to be this way. Jesus is the one that they're following. Jesus is the one that they're learning from so that they can become like him. It's an identity. It's perhaps the most important, I would argue, the most important thing about this community of people is that they are following and learning to become like Jesus, their master. But it's deeper than that. Sometimes when we talk about disciple in this way, we think that it's, just, it's merely an affinity that a person would have for a teacher. And they just kind of follow them around until someday they actually start to emulate them. But it's deeper than that. Jesus' understanding of what it means to make disciples was deeper than that. And I have to show you something. I want to talk about a little bit more about a, what it means to be a disciple, but we can't not look at this passage. This is from Matthew 28, and it starts in verse 16 um, to 20. I want to read about a little bit more about this theme of disciples. And this is the end of Matthew's gospel. It says this, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee. Did you catch that? There's eleven. Why? Well, they need a twelfth. But it hasn't happened yet. So the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, here's why, here's why I wanted to read this tonight. Because being a disciple of Jesus is, is more than just being somebody who learns from Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus means that you've been saved by Jesus. In this passage here in Matthew 28, which is Jesus' marching orders, and we notice Many people have noticed that it's, it's about discipleship. It's about becoming like Jesus. And, and we see in there that in verse, um, in verse 20, Jesus says, teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. But before he says that, in verse 19, he says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. The order is very important there. Here's what I want to say is we cannot become like Jesus, until he's saved us, until he's filled us with the Holy Spirit so that we can learn from his ways 
and actually follow him. Are you tracking with me? This is what it means to be a disciple. Now, we've obviously fast-forwarded past Luke chapter 6, but it's an important thing to consider when we're thinking about being a follower of Jesus. It is required that we be transformed by him from the inside out. And this was his intention all along as he's calling disciples. He says, I'm not just calling you to follow me as kind of another rabbi throughout the first century, but you need to know that I'm actually the savior of the whole world. And so that is his mission, to save people and to teach them how to live out his kingdom. This is the kind of community that he's forming. And it's very important that we see it that way. So Jesus forms this community. It's, there's the 12, there's the apostles, um, there's the disciples, which is everybody. But did you notice somebody else is there? Did you notice there's, there's more than just disciples? Who else is there in our passage back in Luke 6? I see that there's seekers there. They're referred to as a multitude, a great multitude. If you go back to our passage in Luke chapter 6, in in verse 17, it says this, Jesus came down with them, with the 12, and he stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a, (coughs) a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. I'm going to take a brief water break while you look at that amazing passage. I mean, just look at that. There's leaders, there's disciples, and then like everybody else. And here is perhaps the the first church service of Jesus' new community. And there's, there's people who've committed their lives to him. There's people that will be uniquely used by him. And then there's just a lot of other people there. Seekers. They've heard of Jesus. They've heard of his teachings. They've heard that he's a healer. They, they, they've heard that, that he can do something in their life. And they come from all over to see him. And it appears that he welcomes them. As he's forming this community, it appears that they're actually welcomed to be there. What a powerful image. It says, it it tells us that this great multitude comes from all over the place. It says um, many of them came from Jerusalem and Judea, which is not surprising. If you read in the first chapter of Acts, when Jesus sends out his apostles, he sends them to Jerusalem and Judea. Jesus has a unique mission to Israel, God's people. That's why, that's why there's 12. That's, that's, that's something that's happening. But Jesus is forming a new Israel. He's forming a new people. Did you catch the other group of people that are in there? It says people from Tyre and Sidon. This is a pretty unlikely group of people for Jesus to interact with. Tyre and Sidon is, is, a, is a, 
is a place that's referred to in the Old Testament, mentioned as a land that are considered to be wealthy and godless oppressors of Israel, God's people. And here they are when Jesus is forming his new community. Josephus was a, was a first century historian and he writes briefly about people from Tyre and Sidon and he considers them to be our bitterest enemies. Think about that. Jesus is forming a new community. He's saying to Israel, you guys are mine. I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. And your bitterest enemies, they're in too. They're invited as well. What an amazing picture of this reality that the kingdom of God doesn't have walls. All people are invited in. Now, there's a line drawn and that needs to be crossed over. And that line is faith in Jesus. He's the only way, but all are welcome. All are welcome to learn from him. All are welcome to be saved by him, to receive his grace. It says in our passage, our passage ends by saying, Jesus healed all of them. Everyone who showed up. What an amazing picture. This is the community that Jesus is forming not just as an impressive rabbi that people are coming to check out, but as the savior of the whole world. Do you believe that about him? I love this picture of of community because it it kind of reminds me of, of the church. The church is made up of people who follow Jesus. There's some who are are recognized to serve as, as leaders. But in this picture here, there's, there's people there who are, who are just checking Jesus out. And our church is and needs to continue to be a place where that happens, where people who aren't yet sure what they think about Jesus are welcomed to come and see, to sit around the dinner table and to say, can you tell me, can you please tell me more about this Jesus? These people show up because they're hurting and they're broken The people that show up, the multitude that shows up are described as people who are sick. They're troubled with diseases. They're described as as people who show up who are spiritually sick and troubled. And they're all welcomed by Jesus. They're invited to come and to learn from him. Now truly, his ways and his teachings are only possible to follow if you've been saved by him, but everyone is welcome to come and see. And I wonder, I wonder if, if that's something that we needed to hear tonight as a community of Christ for the world. That, by the way, is the mission statement of River West Church. Did you catch that building? a community of Christ for the world, isn't that what's actually happening here in this passage? Jesus is building a community. He's forming it. He's organizing it. And it is for the world. It is so that lives can be changed. It's so that the sick can be healed. It is 
so the spiritually sick can be saved. That's what we need. That's what we're invited into in this passage. And so tonight, tonight what I want us to do is to give thanks that we're a part of that community. I was trying to think about with this passage, like where do you want to take it? Because again, it's this passage that's kind of transitional in the gospel of Luke. But what you need to know is what happens here in Luke chapter 6 is exactly what we're a part of and what we're invited into. And if you're here tonight and you're a seeker of Jesus, maybe you feel like an outsider. What I want you to know is that you're welcome here to learn about Jesus, to learn what it means to follow him, to love him, to be saved by him. That is exactly what we're doing here in this community that is actually built on the foundation of the teaching and testimony of the apostles with Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for this story, for the, the placement of this story in the Gospels. We're grateful to realize that it was the mission of your son Jesus to form a community of people. That he would save and that he would teach to follow him. That's what we want to do, Lord. We want to follow you. And Lord, what we see in Jesus is this invitation for all to come and see. And so as a church community, we want to embody that. We want to live into that. And we want to celebrate that. And so tonight, Lord, I pray that as we come to the table, that we would come to the table of communion together, not just as individuals, but as a community, as a family, a family that has been formed by you and for you. So Lord, teach us tonight, we pray. We want to worship Jesus. He's our Savior. He's our King. And it's in his name we pray, amen.